So we started last week um, our brand new series, No Nonsense Christianity, um, and it's a series based on the book of James. And last week I spoke a little bit about the person of James. Um, I spoke about how he um, was transformed through an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Not a supporter of Jesus to begin with, um, but when he met him after his resurrection, he changed it around and he became very prominent in the early church. And uh, Paul described him as a pillar, not because he was um, round and uh, fat, but because he was supportive of uh, the early church. And we spoke about his desire to see believers mature and grow up in their faith and go on to maturity. And we looked at um, five marks of spiritual maturity found in the book of James. Am I right? I'm feeding back. Okay. Um, and hopefully you've, you've had a chance to look at those in your life groups this week and you found them um, challenging and helpful. Um, I do need to start with one apology from last week. Um, last week I presented James to you in the form of tweets um, and I made the statement that no one sends letters anymore um, and then Malcolm informed me in the week that he'd sent three letters so far. So apologies, apparently letters are still being sent. I just wasn't aware. Um, so this week we're going to get into the text. Um, we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to uh, hopefully this morning get through to verse 6. Um, so... That would be good. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of history um, about the people that James was writing to. Uh, and to do that, we need to go back to our earlier studies, what we were looking at in February, when we were going through the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, or your Kindles, or your iPads, or anything else, uh, if you want to turn with me to the start of Acts, Acts chapter 2, that would be great. So as we know, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and it gave them great boldness to preach the word of God. And in fact, we looked at this with Steve a couple of weeks ago at Pentecost Sunday. Um, and having received the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches to the people in Jerusalem and 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And it says at the end of chapter 2, in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayer and everyone was filled in awe at the many wonders and signs they performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to anyone and gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. Wonderful, right? Doesn't that sound fantastic? It's like a little slice of heaven, this wonderful concept of the early church. And I think sometimes as Christians we get a little bit misty-eyed about this passage and we think, yeah, wouldn't it be great if that's what the church was like today? Except that that's not what they were supposed to be doing. The Jewish nation, the first converts, the early Christians, were supposed to be bringing the message of Jesus to the world. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't say you will receive the Holy Spirit and then hang out and have a nice time together. They were supposed to be taking the message out. So what happened? Well, trouble came. Trials, tribulations... 
chapter 3, the, Peter and John performed one of their healings and then in chapter 4 they were arrested because of it and threatened. They were released and then in chapter 5 they were arrested again and this time they were flogged. And then in chapter 6, Stephen was arrested and then at the end of chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death. And all these troubles start to come upon the people. And then chapter 8 begins this way. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And inside seven chapters, <coughs> they went from this place of happiness and contentment, enjoying the favour of all the people, to trials and tribulation, to dispersion. Just imagine that for a moment. You know, they'd found the Messiah. They thought they had the answer. This was wonderful for them. And then it was taken away from them. And maybe that's a familiar story to some of us this morning. Maybe we remember the time when we first came to faith, when we discovered Jesus for ourselves and how wonderful that felt. And that feeling we had of being in church for the first time and being in a a community of other people that cared for each other and loved each other. And then trouble came. And we think, you know, isn't life supposed to be better now that I'm a Christian? Aren't things supposed to be easier? And we begin to question... You know, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't care about me after all. And the thing is, we live in a society, don't we, who says that our number one priority is our happiness. To make ourselves happy. And when things aren't going well or things are tough, then we should get out. I saw a Facebook that said, life's too short, just do whatever makes you happy. And I wonder if this point in history, when the church was starting to fall apart, when people were being chased out of their homes whether many of them thought about quitting and giving up and just doing something else that makes them happy. And it's into this situation that James writes his letter. This is why I wanted to give you the context. These are the people that he's writing to, those that were in Jerusalem but have now been scattered across the world. So turn with me to James chapter 1. Let's get into it. James begins this way, he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Essentially, James, Jews, hi. This isn't the um, Pauline intros that we're used to. If you read through the New Testament, most of the letters there are written by Paul and Paul likes his long introductions. He likes to say, Paul, an apostle called by Christ to serve Jesus and to you who we miss and wish to visit and all the rest of it. James simply says, hi. And then what does he say? Or what would we say writing to these people? Maybe we'd say, guys, I'm really sorry that things are tough at the moment. We're just so sorry that things have gone so badly and, you know, we're praying for you and and we want everything to be better again and and we're hoping there's a time coming where we can get back together as a church and and we're thinking of you and, and we're just hoping that all these hardships end for you soon. You know, I'm sure we'd write some letter that was really heartfelt. James, however, (coughs) no nonsense James, Uh, he begins this way. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
Be pleased that you're being persecuted and hunted down. Smile, you're off to jail. Your friends are dying, but chin up. Good grief. I mean, think about the context here. These people have had to leave their homes and their families. You're in a foreign land, but consider it joy. What is he talking about? Thankfully, James doesn't end there. He says in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. And the key phrase here is, because you know. James isn't asking them to put on a, a fake smile and just pretend like everything is okay. But he's saying that their attitude, their response to what's happening should be determined by their understanding, by what they know. Their perspective should be from God and not from themselves. And the first thing he does is reveal some truths about their situation. Firstly, he wants them to know that trials, that hardships, that tough times are inevitable, unavoidable. He doesn't say, if you face troubles, he says, whenever you face troubles, they're going to happen. The only time we can expect to be free from troubles is when we're dead. Life gets a lot more quiet when we die. But up until then, troubles are coming. In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, um, he says, I just love the way Peter puts this, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's just a reality of life. We've just finished a whole series on suffering. We know that it's all around us. Secondly, they're unpredictable. The NIV translates the Greek here as whenever you face. Is anyone using the King James Version this morning? Anyone old school? New King James. What does it say instead of whenever you face? It's on verse uh, 2. That's it. When you fall into various trials. And that's, <clears throat> that's actually a better translation because it's the same word that Jesus uses in the story of the Good Samaritan when it says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him his clothing, wounded him, departed and left him half dead. He wasn't expecting trouble. He was just on his way from one place to another. When it came, he fell into it. It was unexpected. No one expects to get a flat tyre, no one expects to get ill, no one expects for relationships to fall apart. Otherwise, why would we get into them in the first place? But they just happen. And thirdly, he wants us to know that there are many kinds of trouble, all shapes and sizes. And the Greek word here is slightly more vivid. It means uh, many coloured. And you, we've had a, a, a colourful week this week at the church. You may have seen some of the new paintwork that we've had done, the now orange annex and uh, thank you Brian for uh, your hard work painting this week and uh, I know Simon's been doing some painting in the nursery as well so we've got all sorts of colours going on now but troubles come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes as well some are small just sort of annoyances or frustrations that we have day to day and some are big and life altering some are inescapable some change everything for us interestingly back in 
um, Peter, he uses the same word, this many-coloured word, to describe the many ways in which God's grace is sufficient for our needs. It's almost as though James says there are many trials and tribulations, and Peter says, yes, but there's also as many types of grace. As many troubles as there are, God's grace is enough. But that's what James wants us to know, that problems are inevitable, they're going to happen, they're unexpected, they're going to come out of the blue, and that they are varied. So problems are inevitable, unexpected, varied, but the fourth thing that James wants us to know is that problems are purposeful, they have a purpose in our life, there's a reason for them. The first thing is that they're given to test our faith. And the word testing here is the same word that they use for the testing of metals, for gold and silver, and what they would do is heat them up to such a temperature that the impurities would be burnt out, taken away from the metal, and you're left with a purer gold and a purer silver. And in the same way, tests are meant to purify us and our faith. And make us better Christians. Well, what's a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Jesus. And Jesus provides the perfect example of passing the test at the cross when he endured suffering and trial for our benefit. Hebrews 5, 7-9 says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he had suffered. And once was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And Jesus was willing to remain obedient to God, even in the midst of suffering. How does our faith hold up under testing? Are we the sorts of believers that only follow Jesus when things are going really well? Or when things start to fall apart, do we want to get out? And if we do, does it mean that our faith meant that much in the first place? Perhaps we need a deeper faith if it's not standing up under testing. Think of that Matt Redmond song that says, Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. But when the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be your name. How do we stand up under testing? The second reason James gives for suffering is to produce perseverance. He says the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This week I read that the word James uses for perseverance is best described as an active steadfastness rather than sort of a a passive submission to circumstances. It means that we endure, that we stay in that situation actively and purposely. We don't really like pressure, do we? We try and get out of it. Whenever pressure comes, whenever hard times come, we do whatever we can to escape. And James doesn't say, whenever you face trials, run away. He says, let perseverance finish its work. And we should learn to remain it till the end. We're not patient people. We want the speed limit to be quicker. We want fast food. We want self-service checkouts. We want to watch entire TV series in one go. We want high-speed broadband. We want sex before marriage. There's very little in this life that we're expected to wait for anymore. When was the last time we prayed? No matter how long this trial lasts, I'm in it till the end. 
When was the last time we prayed, God, I want you to use this situation to refine me, to mature me, and I'm trusting you till the bitter end. We tend to pray, get me out of here. Make it easier. Give me the easy life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. It says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And we're not told what the issue is here that Paul was suffering with. It might have been um, a person, it could have been affliction. We don't know. But he says in verse 8 that three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. Take it away from me. And is that like us? Do we pray, get me out of this situation now, God? I'm a Christian, get me out of here. (laughs) But what was God's response? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul moves in in this passage from a position of complaining about the thorn in his flesh to delighting in his weakness and to delighting in insults and hardships and persecutions because it helps him to trust God, to rely on God's strength. And they teach us to trust as well. They teach us never to give up. And the final thing that James wants us to know is that um, problems make us mature. He says that we need to let perseverance finish its work so we're being mature and complete and not lacking in anything. And God's heart for us is maturity. As I said at the start, he wants us to grow up. And last week we spoke about spiritual maturity and how it has to do with our attitude, with our character. And you know, God is much more interested in building our character than he is in making us comfortable. Some of us may be under the impression that God wants to give us an easy, comfortable life. Peaceable, free from trouble and strife and free from the wife, but that's not what God wants to give us. He wants to give us a character that's like Jesus. And there's two ways that God matures us. A little bit later on in James chapter 1, he talks about how the word of God brings us to maturity. Verses 22 to 25. But even if we read the word of God for two hours a day, there's still a lot more time that we're not reading it. So the second way that God matures our life is through the circumstances of life. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know, this famous verse, and we know that in all things God works for the good. Not that all situations are good. It doesn't say that everything is good. It says that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And the next verse is just as important because it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that we might be more like Jesus, that we might be better witnesses for him. And how we face trials makes a statement about our Christian character. It makes a statement about who we are as Christians. If I can come back to um, James's audience for a minute. James knew what the mission of the church was. He knew you know, that Jesus has said that they were to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And then suddenly, 
this opportunity is presented to him for them to do that. I'm sure they hadn't planned for persecution to come. I'm sure they hadn't planned for trials to arise, but as a result of it, the people had been scattered and suddenly they can fulfil missionally what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. I mean, how many of us can really say that our lives have gone to plan anyway? They just don't, do they? I remember when I was um, 16, I I felt um, the calling of God on my life to go into ministry. And I was so sure of that, that that this was what I was supposed to be doing. And so I thought, right, if I'm going to go into ministry, I need to finish my A-levels, and then I need to go to Bible college for three years, and then I'm going to move into a church. And, and, and that'll be it. That'll be the fulfilling of God's calling on my life. And I'm 30 now. I never got the money together to go and study full-time. I've worked in youth work, both in church and the council. I've worked in a number of colleges. I've worked in social services. I spent four years working at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> and only this year have I began to see the fulfilment of that promise that came to me when I was 16. Good. Fantastic. Thank you for your prayers. And here was the church, Jerusalem, unexpectedly scattered, but with the opportunity to fulfil God's calling on their lives in the midst of their trials. And I know for myself, I couldn't have done this role nine years ago. I wasn't mature enough. I needed to grow up a bit. Many of you here would say, I still need to grow up. But... <laughs> But God's people needed to persevere and they needed to mature as well. So that's what James wants the people to know. He wants them to know the problems that are inevitable, they're unpredictable, but they are purposeful. They test our faith and the depth of our conviction. And they produce perseverance. They teach us to hang in there actively, to stay under pressure. And they bring about maturity of character. So what do we need to do? Knowing all of that, because you know, that's what he says, what should our response be? Well, James gives three things that we are to do. Firstly, he says that we are to consider it joy. We are to rejoice. He's not saying we should fake it. He's not saying we should plaster on a fake smile and just pretend like everything is okay. And he's not talking about masochism either or enjoying suffering or having a a martyr complex. But he's saying that we should rejoice in the problem, in the circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. Why would we give God thanks because we get ill or because someone we love died or because we're having a really hard time. That's ridiculous. That's not the God we serve. But in all circumstances, we can give thanks. Because we know that God can use that situation for our benefit and for the benefit of others as well. And we thank him because God can take bad situations and negative trials and turn them around and bring good out of it. What happened to those um, first Christians that were persecuted and scattered that faced trials? Well, God used them and that situation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are Christians today because of the witness of those first believers. 
that despite the fact that things had not gone to plan, despite the fact that their lives had become incredibly difficult, God still used them to spread his message. And we are a result of that today. And God can do the same in our situations. But it's our attitude towards the situation that determines the outcome. James said we should consider it joy. And consideration is a choice, isn't it? We need to look forward to the future benefit of our problems, not just wallow in them. Are things bad? Well, yes, things are bad, but can God use them for my benefit and for the benefit of others? Yes, he can. We can't prevent bad situations in our life, but we can choose how to respond to them. Um, Victor Frankl, a Jewish psychologist, spent time in a, a Nazi concentration camp um, in Germany. It was a labour camp, and in fact he lost his wife um, and he lost his mother in, in different concentration camps. And he wrote, after the experience he survived, he wrote, They stripped me naked. They took everything my wedding ring, watch. I stood there naked and all of a sudden realised at that moment that although they could take everything away from me, my wife, my family, my possessions, they could not take away my freedom to choose how I was going to respond. We choose how to respond to any given situation. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. It doesn't say I will bless the Lord when I feel like it. I will bless the Lord when I'm happy. I will bless the Lord when things are going my way. It says at all times. And the thing is, problems don't automatically produce a blessing. You know, some problems utterly destroy people. Some problems tear them apart. Some problems take people away from their faith. But it's our attitude that determines the outcome. I'm sure those early Christians that were persecuted, I'm sure those that were doing the persecution thought that this would put an end to this Jesus nonsense, that it would destroy them. But it didn't. It's up to us to choose to respond in the right way. The second thing we can do is pray. We should pray about it. Well, what should we pray? James says in verse 5 that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously to all. Wisdom seems like an odd thing to pray for, doesn't it? But wisdom is about seeing life from God's perspective. It's about understanding the higher purpose to what we're going through. There isn't a situation in life that we face that we can't learn from, that God can't use to mature us. So if we don't understand why we're suffering, then we need to pray for God to help us understand. And the third thing we need to do is relax. We need to trust that God knows what's best for us and we need to not kind of sh try and short-circuit the process and get out of suffering as quickly as we can. It says that when we ask, we must believe and not doubt. We need to let God do the work. We need to pray for wisdom to understand what's going on, but we also need to pray for faith that we can see it through. Problems are either going to develop us or they're going to defeat us. And I know... Um, some of you here this morning are going through some really tough times in your life and uh, some of you I'm sure are and, and, and I'm not aware of it um, and I know for my own life there have been many a time where I've felt just utterly abandoned by God and we think this situation is so hard right now 
there's so much going on and I just don't understand why any of it's happening and I just feel like God's totally given up on me here. Like he's not even listening to me anymore. But you need to know this morning that God knows and he sees the situation and there's a reason for you being in it. That there is a purpose to what you're going through and that at the end of it, things are going to be better. And you know, it may be the case that when we've when we've learnt the lesson, when we've matured, that that situation is taken away. But it also might be the case that it isn't. Remember, Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh and how he prayed for it to be taken away and it wasn't. Because he needed that constant reminder in his life that he was to trust in God despite suffering and despite the trial and the temptation. So let's get the right perspective first. Our trials have a purpose. They test our faith, they produce perseverance, and they bring about maturity of character. They make a statement about our character and they allow us to become more like Jesus if we let them, if we trust that God can mature us through these situations. And once we have the right perspective, we can consider them joy and we can pray that God finishes the work in us And we can trust that those situations are either for our benefit or for the benefit of those around us. Tim, you want to come and join us?